Just as a reminder, following the service this morning, if you're interested in participating or just finding out more information about the uh, mission group or the mission team trip to Guatemala, I believe they will have an informative meeting in M1 following the service. So stop by M1 and you can uh, ask additional information. Okay, we are, we just began a series on the Holy Spirit last Sunday, and I am continuing this morning with this series, and we're looking at the Holy Spirit in the community of grace, uh, particularly the work of the Holy Spirit and the people of God in the Old Testament. So if you'll turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 33. We'll read verse 12 down through verse 16. Exodus chapter 23, verse 12 through 16. This is God's word. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? God's word, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. We pray now that as we come to the preaching of your word that you would take the lips, that my lips, and that you would uh, speak through them, and that you would take the word that we hear, that it would be ingrained in our hearts, that your spirit, that your presence would use it to change us, to transform us, to mold us, and to shape us into the people, the community of grace that you've called us to be. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So the title this morning, The Holy Spirit in the Community of Grace. When I was about four years old, I received a toy, electric toy train set for Christmas. And it was the first of many train sets that I would receive. Um, Somehow, for the first uh, five or six years, whenever I received each one, they only lasted for maybe a month or two months. uh, Because I found great pleasure in playing with them off the track. I don't know if any of you who ever received such a toy as a child can identify, but I like to take the train and move it on the floor and move it around all other places because it was so liberating being able to take it anywhere I wanted it to go. The only problem with that was when you take a train off the track, it doesn't work. It has to make connection. The metal wheels on the engine has to make connection with the metal track. And even one step further from the outlet, um, which 
is plugged into the wall, there's a small box called the transformer, and it takes roughly the amps, the 25 amps or so that you get from the outlet, transfers them into five or 10 amps, reduces them and allows energy, electric current, to flow through the track. And without the train making contact with the track, uh, the train ultimately does not work. Now, if you don't plug in the transformer into the wall, or if you don't have the train on the track, the train cannot function in the way that it was intended. You might have a lot of fun playing with it in the carpet, but as I can attest from experience as a child, before long the carpet fibers get entangled in the wheels and it doesn't work. You might have a lot of fun playing with it outside, but after a while it gets dirty, it gets broken, and when contact is made with the track, it doesn't work. Well, this simple analogy can help us, I believe, in understanding the relationship between our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and His mission for His people revealed in our text. God had a plan for Israel, and He has a plan for you and me, and this plan is implemented when the community of grace, responding to this grace, surrenders to the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when we are on the track, we are able to connect with God. If I could be so vulgar, we are able to connect with the power source of the church and fulfill the function for which we were designed to fulfill. Now, our text really reveals three things, three aspects of the Holy Spirit and the community of grace that I'd like to share with you briefly this morning. Uh, the first is that the Holy Spirit fulfills the mission of the triune God. The second is that the Holy Spirit conveys the favor of God to the people of God. And the third point is the Holy Spirit makes the people of God holy. So we'll go ahead and begin with the first point, which is the Holy Spirit fulfills the mission of the triune God. The first uh, few verses which we read in our text, they make up a conversation. They reveal this dialogue between Moses and God. But to place this dialogue in the context of the story, you have to go back and you have to read chapter 32 because something significant happened in the previous chapter. After all, Moses had been on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights. He had fellowship with God. God gave Moses the law so that he could give it to the people of Israel. But when Moses came down from the mountain, he heard a sound in the camp that was not the sound of war. It was the sound of rejoicing. They were having a party. They were having a party because they had taken their earrings and their bracelets and all the other finery and the jewelry that they had coming out of Egypt, and they made this golden calf. And Aaron, the one who was designated by God to be the high priest of his people, danced around the calf and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so the anger of the Lord waxed hot, according to Scripture, and he wanted to consume them to destroy them in a moment. But instead, Moses once again returns to God, and he begins to pray, to intercede on behalf of the people of God. And he tells God, do not blot them from your book. Spare them. Do not respond to them in anger, but show them mercy. And so it's in the context of this intercessory prayer that we hear God and Moses have this dialogue, this conversation. And what we see is something rather profound. 
that Moses first asks for help. He realizes that he's in over his head. He realizes that he has been given a mission that is greater than anything he's able to accomplish. The mission is God's mission. The mission from the standpoint of any human reckoning is impossible to lead a nation of slaves through the wilderness into the land of promise. And so in the presence of God, he begins the conversation by saying, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. In other words, he was saying, God, this mission is too big for me. I need help. Who will go with me? Who will help me? Who will deliver this people from the hand of the enemy? Who will fight the battles of these people, these people who can't even be faithful to you for 40 days while I'm atop the mountain? Who will go with me? Who will help me? Well, this cry for help is not an uncommon request. In fact, we see in John's Gospel, chapter 14, that Christ, when he's teaching on the nature of the Holy Spirit, he says this, he says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, the Greek word that is used there for helper is the word parakletos, which means literally in English, an advocate, one summoned to be alongside of another. And so going back to Moses, when Moses was crying out, who will you send to be a helper? Who will you send to be alongside of me? What was God's response? Well, we see it in verse 14. He said, God said, my presence will go with you. Now it's true that God gave Moses a human helper, his successor, Joshua. But in this particular text, at this moment of time, God does not have Joshua in mind. He is making a distinction between the people of God and the people, all other peoples on the earth. He's making a distinction. He's saying this divine mission, this mission of a triune God is impossible. It cannot be accomplished. It cannot be implemented by any other means than the Holy Spirit. My presence will go with you. It is the presence of God among his people that is the ultimate help, the aid, the one, the person who accomplishes the mission of our triune God. It is the Holy Spirit who will fulfill through human and unhuman, natural and supernatural means, the very mission of God. The Holy Spirit is portrayed in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament as the wisdom and power of God. He was involved in the creation of the world. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. It says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The Holy Spirit, which caused the mission of God in creation to come to fruition. And we see again in the New Testament when Christ is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary that it is the Holy Spirit of God that overshadows her in a very similar way as he did at the moment of creation to create within her womb the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit accomplishes the mission of the triune God. We see this again in Psalms 104 verse 30. 
The psalmist said, when you send forth your spirit, they, all things, are created and you renew the face of the ground. This is why the Apostle Paul later in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says that Christ offered himself through the eternal spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, Old Testament and New Testament alike, that allows the triune mission, or the, rather the mission of a triune God to be accomplished. Moses is empowered by the Holy Spirit to lead. David, later, generations from now, will be filled with the Holy Spirit to reign. And Israel was led throughout the wilderness wanderings by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. All such instances are indicators of the Holy Spirit's work accomplishing the mission of God. So, you may ask, how does the Holy Spirit accomplish the mission of God in your life? Well, let me put it very simply. You are not a Christian because of what you know about God nor because of what you believe about Christ. Now, this is not to detract from the work of faith in your life. Obviously, I believe in the great reformed doctrine of sola fide. We are justified by faith alone through grace, or by grace through faith alone. This is not to detract from orthodoxy. It's important what we know and what we believe about God. But faith is not an intellectual consent to a concrete set of beliefs. You are a Christian because the Holy Spirit dwells in you and applies everything that Christ accomplished on your behalf, including the ability to believe in him. The Holy Spirit brings the plan of God, the purpose of God to fruition in the lives of the Old Testament community of grace, as well as in the lives of the New Testament community of grace. Leads me to my second point, which is that the Holy Spirit conveys the favor of God to the people of God. We build our theology on a foundation of grace, the unmerited, the unsolicited favor of God. However, we are often unaware of the avenue by which this grace is conveyed in our lives. There's a very interesting exchange here between Moses and God. Moses declares a reality that God has already made known to him. He states, you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. In other words, what Moses is saying is, God, you know us by name, and we have already found favor in your sight. We've already been shown grace. Now, if this is true, show us what we are to do in order that we might find grace. And I would suggest that in this dialogue, this is the only instance in which Moses is a bit confused. God has already shown favor to his people. He called them out of Egypt. As we see in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Redemption occurred. They were the people of God the moment they left Egyptian bondage. 
While they were on the doorsteps of Sinai, God gave them his law to show them how that they as his people were to live. But it was his Holy Spirit working in them as a community of grace, separating them, making them distinct, making them different from all other peoples that ultimately conveyed his grace to them. We see this even in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Because what happened? After Israel left Egypt, they were caught between literally the pursuing armies of the Egyptians and the great Red Sea. And what happened to the pillar of cloud? If you read the book of Exodus, the text says the pillar of cloud removed from being in front of the people of God and came between the people of God and the on-approaching armies of the Egyptians. The distinction, the separation, ultimately brought about by the holy presence of God among his people. And so the favor with which God relates to Israel and relates to Moses is something that is already a reality. But how many times do you and I, much like Moses, say, okay, God, now that I've found grace in your eyes, show me what I need to do so that I can find grace in your eyes. It is already a reality. And notice that it's the point that God does not address in his response. In verse 14, he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. In other words, what he is telling Moses is, you need to rest. Take a break. Don't focus on what you do in order to earn my favor. My favor cannot be earned. Rather, rest in the fact that I have called you. Rest in the fact that I have elected you. Rest in the fact that I have put my mark upon you because my presence is among you. It is the Holy Spirit of God that makes this distinction and that conveys this grace to his people. Now, I'm dating myself a little bit, but do you remember the 1998 classic movie, probably more men will than women, Saving Private Ryan? Um, there's what I think is the most profound moment in the entire movie at the very end when Captain John Miller, having lost most of his men on what some would consider a harebrained mission to find and save Private James Ryan, he told Ryan with his dying breath, earn this. And he was referring specifically to the death of the squadron, the death of the men who enabled him to go home to his family. And then the movie flashes forward to the end of James Ryan's life. And James Ryan, sensing that the end is near, he turns to his wife and he says, tell me that I am a good man. Tell me that those men didn't die in vain. See, it is a fundamental default setting on our human heart that we feel regardless of how significant the gift, that we feel we have to do something to earn it. But when Christ hung suspended between heaven and earth, he did not look at you and me and say, earn this. Instead, he cried out to his father and said, it is finished. And according to the book of Hebrews, he offered himself through the Holy Spirit. 
So it is the same Holy Spirit and the community of grace that differentiates between the people of God and the people of this world, between those whom God shows grace and favor to and those whom he passes by. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, and he's referring specifically to the Holy Spirit, he says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God accomplishes the mission of the triune God and the Holy Spirit of God conveys the grace of God to his people. Now, let me come around to the third and final point, which I want to linger a bit on, which is that the Holy Spirit makes the people of God holy. It's interesting to me that when Moses is having this dialogue with God, he has a lot to say compared to God's response. In verse 14, God simply says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That is a promise, a promise of certainty that his presence will be with his people and where his presence is, his people will have rest, rest from our labors. Now this does not absolve us of the responsibility of living out our new identity. No, we are responsible as God's children to live like God's children, which takes me to this third and final point, that the Holy Spirit makes the people of God holy. We see this in Moses' response to God's comment. This is where he's back on track. He has it right. Moses says to him in verse 15, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It is worth noting that Moses does not say that all the peoples of the earth will know that God's people are distinct because they obey God's law. Nor does it say that all the people of the earth will know that God's people are distinct because they miraculously go in and take possession of the land of Canaan overthrowing nations and kingdoms mightier than they. These things are important, but they are the result of the one thing that God tells Moses and that Moses affirms is a reality. They are the result of the Holy Spirit of God, the presence of God living among and within his people. Think too many times as Christians, we want to focus on the outcome instead of the input. We look for the person to do the right thing and to say the right thing, pumping their head full of right ways of thinking. Then we throw up our hands in despair when Christians act no different from their unbelieving neighbors. Just this past week, I was startled at a survey that was conducted by Ligonier Ministries, which revealed that 51% of all people who say that they are evangelical believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity alike. 59% of those who are polled say that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but a force. Well, with such a weak view of the Holy Spirit, is there any wonder that our gatherings leave others wondering 
what's different about us. If one were to ask me what is the greatest need among the American church today, I would not say more prayer, though that is needed. I would not say more orthodox teaching, though that is needed. I would not say a hunger for holiness, though that is essential, for without holiness no man shall see God. I would say that our fundamental need is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that others would know by our very demeanor that we are different. The Holy Spirit of God makes the people of God holy. Now you can say, that sounds good, what does it look like? Well, we have to flip to the New Testament to find an answer to that question. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, he says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. There is no secret pill for a struggling Christian. There's a powerful person. There is no quick way out, no quick way to the top of discipleship. There is a call to surrender your heart to be led by the Spirit of God. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 5.22, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit, this answers the question, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Let me be so bold as to say something that I pray does not offend you, but if it does, pray about it. <laughs> if the world cannot tell that you are a Christian, you are not surrendered to the Spirit of God. If the world cannot tell that I am a Christian, I am not surrendered to the Spirit of God. Paul tells us, that as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the children of God. As many as are born of the Spirit, we should demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Again, Paul goes on to say, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. And just as the Old Testament temple was made holy by the presence of God dwelling in its midst, so we too are made holy by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. So when we come to examine the work of the Holy Spirit in the community of grace, we conclude three things that are here explicit in the text. First, that the Holy Spirit fulfills the mission of the triune God. In fact, one theologian put it this way, and I think it, I can't say it better myself, so I'll quote him. Cornelius Venema said, The Holy Spirit's peculiar work in the salvation of the elect reminds us that it is not enough to speak of God's eternal purpose in election. God's eternal purpose saves no one. It must still be put into effect. Nor is it sufficient to describe the redemptive accomplishments of Christ the mediator. The actual salvation of elect sinners only occurs by means of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So the Holy Spirit fulfills the mission of the triune God. 
The Holy Spirit conveys the favor of God to the people of God. And finally, the Holy Spirit makes the people of God holy. Oftentimes, we want to bemoan the state of the church in America. We conclude that the answer is more theology, more orthodoxy. And that's important. We conclude that the answer is more events, more outreach opportunities. And that's important. But I would suggest that those are potential distractions if we are not surrendered to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit makes the people of God holy. So to conclude, if your life resembles a toy train stuck in the mud of mediocrity, if your life resembles a toy train whose wheels won't roll because they're clogged with carpet fibers, allow me to encourage you to cry out to God. He it is who is able to seize you with his powerful right hand and place you firmly on the track of salvation. Until he does, you will be lifeless and useless to the kingdom of God, regardless of how much you may think otherwise. And to the person of the Holy Spirit empowers you for Christian living, you will search aimlessly for some cerebral aphrodisiac that offers a false sense of separation from this world. Our faith is not a dead creed to which we offer our informed consent. Our faith is the fruit of a living person who leads us into all truth. A helper, a parakletos, someone who has been summoned by the very court of heaven to walk alongside us and fulfill in us and through us the mission of the triune God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, for it is by his shed blood, it is by his death, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, that we can address you as our Father. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit, for it is through the person and work of the Holy Spirit that everything that Christ accomplished can be applied on our behalf. And Father, as we think about fruitful Christian living in the 21st century, let us not be distracted by the good things, but let us focus on the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. May we be a community of grace that is surrendered and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. For by this shall all peoples on the earth know that we are distinct because your presence is among us. And I pray that with your presence you would give us rest. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.